Private equity abuse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. A lot of private equity firms and hedge funds exist to essentially buy up assets and then maximize revenues and squeeze costs. But that is having a dramatic impact on so many aspects of American society. And here to talk about that is Ricardo Valadez. He's a private equity campaign manager for Americans for Financial Reform. Ricardo, do I have that about right? That this, their goal is essentially to squeeze out as much money as possible. And, and what are the ramifications? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, what we've seen you know, in uh, Industry after industry, uh, where private equity buys up uh, businesses, is that they're really responsible for some of the worst, uh, most abusive business practices in the country. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of folks don't know uh, about the reach of private equity and and some of their business practices. And that's something that we're trying to uh, trying to do something about. Um, you know, the the size is really uh, the size of the industry is really is really tremendous. It's grown from about a trillion dollars. Uh, uh, in assets in 2008 to uh, about uh, almost seven and a half trillion today, and it's growing uh, exponentially um, as we speak. And and they uh, they really are expanding into um, uh, industry after industry, whether it's uh, healthcare, retail, uh, you name it, and, uh, entertainment. <clears throat> There's really. Uh, well, I was no even shocked. I mean, something near and dear to my heart in journalism: local newspapers are being bought up by private equity, and local newspapers, which used to invest a lot in terms of resources, uh, uncovering you know city council and public corruption at the local level, these private equity firms come in, slash costs, and all of a sudden the the newspapers are not even a fraction of what they used to be. Yeah, they've really devastated newsrooms over the last decade. Um, you know, to the to the detriment of of local communities. Uh, you know, it's not just the the reporters, uh, you know, who lose their jobs, right? It's communities that lose their their source, uh, like you said, of of uh, of city council, of local police corruption, uh, and it's you know they've they've made a lot of money by uh, selling off the <coughs> real estate uh, that the, that the newspapers owned, um, and they continue expanding in that in that industry as well. Yeah, this idea of you know selling off assets, whether it's a real estate, and then forcing some of these companies to essentially rent something, a building that they that they used to to own. It's it's nonsense, and we've seen things whether it's Toys R Us, we've others, we've seen many major brand names that have been destroyed by private equity. What's the sort of overall political landscape right now as far as private equity is concerned? Yeah, so uh, that's an interesting question. You know, um, uh, folks may be familiar with you know uh, the example of Toys R Us from a few years ago of how they uh, forced Toys R Us into bankruptcy. You know, closed a, a store that uh, so many of us grew up with um, and left the workers in the cold. Um, you know, they they continue you know to to um, to to buy up uh, assets in. In, uh, in retail and expand in other places. And really what that uh, what they're trying to do uh, politically uh, is is you know not make sure that they can continue their business model uh, uninterrupted. Um, they spent a lot uh, millions of dollars in the last election cycle um, to try to keep the Senate you know in a, a split um, in, in Republican hands to keep a divided government. Um, to to make sure that you know no changes to their business model uh, could could be made, and yet there are some members of Congress who are looking for regulatory changes. It looks like I mean, what's the possibility that Congress is able to attach some sort of reform, some sort of new regulatory approach in terms of reining in some of these private equity firms and hedge funds? 
Yeah, that's really the hope. Um, you know, there's uh, there are uh, things the Biden administration can do uh, through regulatory fixes, um, and uh, and there are also you know opportunities to to maybe put some guardrails on uh, some uh, on any money that that the private equity industry might uh, access uh, through the reconciliation process. Um, that's something that uh, we know that they're uh, looking at closely. Uh, they've been <clears throat> they've spent a lot on uh, uh, in the second quarter, uh, nearly five million dollars in the second quarter uh, lobbying uh, around uh, the reconciliation bill. Uh, we know that they are you know salivating at the uh, potential expansion of some of the industries um, that they are um, invested in uh, in uh, healthcare and home health. Um, and you know we we expect uh, a big fight around you know uh, trying to put some uh, guardrails to to protect to to protect those uh, programs from private equity abuse. So they're trying to essentially get some of the money that would be in this, for example, the infrastructure bill. They're trying to get some of this to their businesses and to the companies that they own. Yeah. So in in the as part of the reconciliation package, um, you know the the there are proposals to expand uh, home and community based services. Uh, to the elderly and, dis and disabled, as well as expansions in, in childcare, and those are um, areas where private equity owns uh, companies. Um, and you know, we believe that there should be limits to their ability to simply take that federal money um, and drive it into towards uh, profits and, and buying back stocks to to enrich themselves while continuing to you know potentially uh, squeeze worker pay and you know, uh, uh, increase the cost to to consumers, uh, as we've seen them do in other in, in other uh, sectors. You mentioned the elderly. I know that private equity is heavily invested now in a lot of nursing home companies. What sort of impact does it have in terms of the quality of care? I mean, how would we see for our relatives or people who are in uh, elder care facilities? What would be the impact of a private equity firm coming in and essentially owning that chain of facilities? Yeah, that's been a really alarming trend, uh, frankly, uh, that we've seen uh, some data come out over the last year. Um, there was a, a study uh, that came out earlier this year that really uh, tied uh, increased death and increased illness in uh, in nursing homes uh, to private equity ownership. Um, and, and that came uh, also with uh, additional cost to taxpayers, as most of the uh, many of those um, are funded by uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, so uh, we we see you know uh, literally um, lives being lost uh, uh, to increase their profits and uh, you know create more uh, billionaires uh, as the industry does. And how much is a private equity now part of the overall healthcare system? And this idea that you know all of us, including healthcare, are just numbers on a spreadsheet. I mean, a lot of us don't feel like that's the way our medical system should be structured. But how pervasive is it, given the interests of private equity? Yeah, I don't have a specific number, you know, for healthcare, but we do know, you know, as you mentioned, that they've been in nursing homes, they've been buying up a lot in in hospice care, which is another alarming trend. We know they've also been buying up a lot of assets in dermatology and dentistry. Uh, women's health, uh, you name it, uh, across the country, um, they, you know, they, they have a common uh, practice of buying up uh, smaller practices and creating conglomerates uh, that they can, you know, then use to uh, exert market pressures and, and, you know, squeeze consumers. 
There's also the argument though from the private equity firms that because of these conglomerates, they argue, hey, we're able to increase efficiencies with a lot of these local businesses. What's the response to that? Sure, yeah, that you know that that is definitely um, how they uh, kind of pitch themselves. Um, and you know the types of uh, reforms and recommendations that we're making around you know guardrails and protections um, wouldn't affect their profit margins if that's actually how they make profits. Um, so you know we advocate for uh, strong worker protections and labor standards, um, as well as you know limiting the types of financial engineering that uh, they can do to extract uh, wealth and profits uh, from those types of practices. Um, and so, if you know, if indeed their uh, uh, you know profit and advantage comes from uh, uh, increased efficiency, you know that uh, that wouldn't be uh, disrupted. I've heard one uh, private equity firm say, "Look, you know, if 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 somebody, if anybody can move their business, say from the upper Midwest to Mexico, because it helps the corporation and helps them become more efficient and lowers costs, why can't a private equity firm do the same with the businesses that they own?" Sure, um, you know, uh, the corporatization and, and financialization of the economy has has been a, a you know a trend we've seen that's been harmful to workers, you know, over the last few decades, including moving jobs to to, to offshore. Um, and the 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 standout issue with private equity is often that you know the exploitation is supercharged uh, because really their necessity to uh, to, to supercharge their returns in a small amount of time is baked into their business model. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, we, we do see just as, you know, just the same as when it comes to moving uh, jobs offshore or, or you know, um, uh, forcing layoffs or store closures. Uh, we do see those trends in other areas, but, you know, for example, um, uh, bankruptcies in, in retail are far more common in private equity owned businesses than uh, in you know in the broader economy. Yeah, and it used to be the case that uh, that a retail business was started by somebody who you know started maybe with a small store, became sort of an expert at it, and continued to grow it. A, a newspaper started by a newspaper man or woman, which then expanded, and so you had people who were familiar with the industry, the business. I'm not so sure how much uh, private equities are familiar with the newspaper business, the journalism business, a lot of a retail businesses. So it certainly does seem like a uh, pervasive problem. Ricardo Valadez, private equity campaign manager for Americans for Financial Reform. Ricardo, good luck with you. Good luck to you on all of this, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. Chasing the Antifa unicorn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Most grownups know that unicorns don't exist. Likewise, in Northern California in June of 2020, there was not a bus or busloads of Antifa people running around Northern California spreading mayhem. However, that was the impression that several local law enforcement had in Northern California and in Oregon, and it has sparked all kinds of chaos. Joining us to talk about this is Sam Levin. He's a correspondent for The Guardian who has been writing about all of this. Sam, what happened? Hi, thanks so much for having me. So there were a lot of rumors flying around at the beginning of the sort of George Floyd protests in early June of last year on social media that you know busloads of Antifa protesters were coming to these small towns to you know attack people and cause mayhem. Um, these rumors were not true, and you know were sort of quickly debunked by fact checkers and you know researchers on the far right. However, I obtained records. 
of how police in California and in Northern California were talking about these Antifa bus rumors. And those records showed that police took these rumors very seriously and in fact appeared to be duped by these, these hoax social media posts. So we saw in Northern California that the California Highway Patrol and a couple of their police departments were engaged on this matter. And in fact, actually launched a sort of aerial surveillance in response to just two social media posts looking for potential Antifa buses. And what was the reaction from local communities when law enforcement has all of this chatter about something that's not happening, but they think it's happening. And then a lot of people must have fed off of the reaction from law enforcement to be terrified or frightened unnecessarily. Yeah, it's a bit of a feedback loop because you do have a lot of fear in this communities and a lot of misinformation. And then you had police officials kind of passing along this misinformation, stating it as fact when in fact it was not true. And so, you know, in Oregon, we saw some very scary examples of, you know, these sort of militias popping up, as well as just you know civilians arming themselves to kind of protect their towns from, you know potential Antifa protesters when there really was no evidence that this was happening at all. And certainly no you know, buses of protesters traveling from city to city to cause mayhem. Um, so there were a lot of uh, people who believed these rumors. And you know, in the story I reported in, in Humboldt County, you know, in Northern California specifically, you know, the sheriff there repeated these claims and then continued to sort of double down on them and, and raise concerns about Antifa threats even after the claims had been debunked and it was clear that there were no busloads of Antifa coming to town. Why was it that the sheriff in Humboldt County was not able to either do his own due diligence or, or check it or believe the, the fact checkers? I mean, what was it that, is it a lack of resources? Is it a lack of time? Why is it just as preconceived stereotypes? I mean, what would lead the sheriff of a small community like this to buy into such nonsense? Well, the rumor amongst police departments actually started with the California Highway Patrol, which is obviously a state agency. And so from the emails, what we were able to gather is that the um, basically a chief in the Northern Division of the California Highway Patrol sent along two screenshots to partner agencies across the region. Um, one was from Instagram and one was from Facebook. Um, they were these sort of weirdly cropped, you know, dubious screenshots that anyone could look at them and and think, you know, these don't look super legitimate just on quick glance. But they sent that along and basically was forwarded to a bunch of police leaders who all just said, be on the lookout for Antifa buses, you know, watch out. And and it quickly, you know, we saw within just hours uh, it spread, and and you know, police were talking about it, you know, to their own staff, and then eventually in press conferences, and so. It's unclear, you know, what sort of due diligence the Humboldt County Sheriff specifically did or or did not do. But he repeatedly said, you know, this comes from intelligence from the California Highway Patrol, and and said they were the ones who had the evidence. And from what we can gather, that only evidence was just two individual screenshots. And CHP has even told me that that is the evidence that they had at the time, and and it's you know not very much. And when CHP was passing this along, did they say, okay, we have these screenshots, we haven't verified them, we don't know if this really suggests, but just so you know what sort of out, I mean, was there any sort of caution that was issued along with these emails and texts and messages? It doesn't appear that way. On the contrary, it was treated with quite seriousness from the get go. I mean, we see it was just sent along 
initially saying, you know, please look into this. This was a chief sending it to her staff. And then, you know, within an hour, you have another official passing it along to a further group of staff saying something like, the thought is these buses are roaming, looking for events to attend and possibly cause problems. Um, and one of them did have this grainy image of a van with a Black Lives Matter, you know, slogan written on the back. It's unclear where that photo came from, but obviously the, there are, you know, potential very serious consequences here if, you know, vans are being stopped or if there's someone who does have a Black Lives Matter, you know, a slogan on their car, you know, being stopped. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was not a lot of disclaimers with with these messages being passed along. It was uh, kind of treated as a, a very serious threat. From the start, and and that's why they launched, you know, aerial surveillance to potentially look for a bus, and they obviously didn't find anything. Right. I mean, to launch an aircraft in the sky, I mean, suggests a, a certain level of institutional ignorance in this part of California, maybe Southern Oregon. I, I gather that these small communities—they're almost all white, mostly agricultural. Perhaps there's a lot of weed that's being grown. I, I assume that they don't have much of an interaction with people who support Black Lives Matter or might sympathize with Antifa. Yeah, I mean, these are more conservative white rural communities in California. Um, however, you know, there are there are groups of protesters who who you know were active uh, in Black Lives Matter activism, and you know, these just smaller protests, you know, in honor of George Floyd, just like there were all across the country dur during this uprising. But um, yeah, there there aren't these big organized groups, um, and certainly there are no people traveling from city to city. I mean. The rumor in this case was was literally that there was some sort of bus of you know violent protesters traveling from Oregon to California and just stopping from place to place to cause mayhem, and that just uh, has no relationship to any kind of organization, you know, whether it's anti-fascist activists or Black Lives Matter, um, just has no relationship to reality. Yeah, and you would think that if there really was a bus loaded with people who's gonna who are gonna cause mayhem, that police at the state level and also the local level would have some ability to you know verify does this bus really exist? Where is it? What's the location? What are the plate numbers? I mean, there's all sorts of things that you would expect a law enforcement agency to be able to do if that situation was real. Yeah, and I mean, these rumors have had really catastrophic consequences at various times. I mean, the most sort of prominent example in California was that there were rumors that you know Antifa was starting the wildfires, which have obviously been very devastating here, and that led uh, just sort of civilians to to take up arms and set up these you know blockades to stop people from from traveling in and questioning them whether they were Antifa, you know, including people who were evacuating fires. So, you know, these are not just uh, you know small incidents that have little consequences. These these can have substantial um, cause, substantial harm. You know, this is the real sort of impact of misinformation. Yeah, and you can imagine, you know, an African American family that might be traveling through Northern California and traveling up the coast, and just so happens to have either a Black Lives Matter a bumper sticker, whatever it is, they are going into a community that is fearful and frightened, and suddenly they get pulled over for no reason. Then somehow they are quote unquote suspicious. I mean, it's just it's it's mind boggling. Boggling. Have there been any apologies? Has there been any effort by law enforcement to say, okay, we got it wrong, and here's what we're going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? No, there hasn't been. Um, I have not seen that with California Highway Patrol or the the Humboldt Sheriff, were the, which were the main agencies that I were, you know, was writing about in this case. Um, you know, they've they've just sort of said, oh, you know, this wasn't. They're, they've sort of tried to downplay, you know, the operation that they launched in response, basically saying, oh, you know, this wasn't a major operation, you know, and that we, the aircraft was only in the air for, you know, a couple minutes looking for this bus, things like that. 
Um, but they have not, you know, uh, apologized. And what's been the reaction to the reporting that you've done on all of this? I mean, has there been much reaction from members of the community? Has there been, uh, tell me what you've heard. Yeah, I mean, I think people are just really outraged by it. I've, you know, heard from folks in Humboldt County specifically who said, you know, they weren't surprised just because of their sort of past experiences. And, you know, when this happened last year, this was, you know, sort of a big story locally because there was a lot of questions to that sheriff. And so there were already people who, were upset with the sheriff repeating these rumors. And I think the reporting that we've done here, which came from these records from Property of the People, you know, which is a, a nonprofit group that had obtained them, uh, shows that you know there was actually quite an operation behind the scenes. And so that has just fur- further fueled people's you know, outrage at this because uh, it is very you know, distressing and, and disturbing to, to know that this is you know, how law enforcement receives information and acts upon it and mm. um, you know, the potential consequences there. Yeah, I mean, the lack of discretion, particularly from you know the sheriff in Humboldt County is is remarkable. And I assume that he is he's still there. He's still in his job. He is, yes. And you know, uh, he you know has just uh, stood by what he said at the time. and uh, you know he, he didn't I didn't speak to him directly and obviously spoke to his spokesperson throughout this. and as you know, they've sort of reiterated this came from the CHP and you know, we were just passing that along and you know, the CHP was the one that launched the aerial surveillance. And so they, you know, bear that responsibility. Um, but certainly he was the one who uh, spread these rumors publicly by talking about it in press conferences and subsequent press statements when he was questioned on it. Sam Levin, he's a correspondent for The Guardian. Sam, terrific work on this story. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. And that will do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.